So as, uh, as we've already said, uh, what we mean by eros, the the way we are using that term, um, is actually woven in and related to and <clears throat> indissolubly uh, uh, caught, bound up with and connected to a whole range of other <clears throat> terms that we're using um, with specific meanings uh, to form a kind of larger conceptual framework. There's a whole web of uh, relationships and implied meanings there. So we can't really um, unpack what we mean by eros without uh, saying, beginning to say uh, and include more of those terms and say a little bit about um, those other other uh, notions and how and a little bit about what the relationships are, but but this whole edifice, this whole architecture, conceptual framework, is something will will unfold gradually. There's quite a lot, um, quite a lot to it in a way. So I want to begin doing that now, um, and just before I do, um, you know, just to say, I'm 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 aware that. Um, I'm referring to a, a, what is now really quite a large body of work. We think about all the material on emptiness and dependent arising and um, imaginal practice and uh, re-enchantment and uh, all that. It's actually quite a large body of work together with this, uh, this piece of this course on era. So if someone who... Uh, is uh, you know coming from the insight meditation tradition or, or something like that? Were to just pick a talk at random and uh, listen to that talk, they would probably, uh, well, probably be just baffled, puzzled, probably even maybe shocked, uh, perhaps even outraged. What is this? What is he talking about? What are they talking about? How on earth did we get here? Th- these words, soul. Eros, divinity, even the word God, um, cosmopoesis, whatever that means. Um, wh- what on earth is he talking about? How did he get there? And this is really pretty far out. And is this Buddhism? Uh, now, I've touched on <laughs> that last question before. Um, it, 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 it may be, in some respects, quite an interesting question. Um, in other respects, it might be not be interesting at all. What's more interesting about it to me is um, why is a person asking such a question and um, what assumptions and fantasies are operating for them and what's, in our language, what soul styles um, can we uh, approach this material with in its relationship to, let's say, um, more conventional interpretations of Dharma. And I've talked about that before, I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, But just to say that um, I would say this body of material needs uh, listening to, studying, practicing with um, all that material around the emptiness, but but certainly around the imaginal material, um, in series. Uh, In in other words, it, it adds up. And in that way, only then can a person kind of um, see and understand what what is meant. 
in these teachings. But we'll also uh, hopefully understand if a person does that, listens, studies, ponders, and practices in, in series, that there is kind of, um, what I would say, an almost inevitable or natural evolution um, of uh, these this material now. Um, it, it evolved, if you like, naturally. The, the doors uh, were presented one after another. The consequences, the avenues were traveled um, in a kind of logical or uh, inevitable order. One insight, one opening led to another, uh, etc. All based on what we might call the phenomenological approach, uh, which is what I would like to think uh, the, uh, how I would base my approach to Dharma is very, very simple, starting with very, very simple practices, um, uh, including the ideas of mindfulness, but not based on the usual assumptions. So this, this is what makes a phenomenological approach. Not based on the usual assumptions, but based on um, just what do I have as a human being? I have experience. I have what appears to me. Phenomena means appearance. Um, and just basing it on this is experience. And what can I discover about experience? And introducing into that very quickly, one discovers, oh, well, I can look at it this way, and I can look at it that way, I can relate to it this way, that way. So the ideas of ways of looking and fabrication eventually come out of that, because I see some ways of looking fabricate differently than others that we touched on. So all this unfolds, very, very simple practice, just not based on the usual assumptions, just suspending them, opening them, relating to what actually is here, experience is here, appearance is here, um, without other assumptions, and all this leads to other concepts, um, other ways of framing what's happening, and out of that comes a freedom um, and uh, certain conceptual frameworks or the availability to look in different ways and to conceive in different ways. If um, one doesn't understand all that uh, and see it through practice and then and almost like stage by stage, probably, uh, probably you, uh, a person won't understand um, what, what we're saying now in these teachings. Probably. There are always exceptions, of course. <coughs> um, but without that practice and without those understandings and those insights, uh, there's not going to be an understanding. So that's one thing. A second thing is um, related regarding these words uh, like, for instance, soul or divinity or God. Um, this is interesting why some people react to these words. Um, and just to point out, you know, Everyone, unless you're a real weirdo, <laughs> everyone uses the word self. Uh, I, you, self, etc. Um, and everyone experiences selves. Everyone experiences selves, their own self or selves, and, and the selves of others. So uh, it's just the same, or rather it's similar uh, with the notion of divinity. We're talking about experience. Okay, So just as self is a word that we use in experience, so is divinity. Or rather, divinity is a whole range um, of experiences, a whole range of dimensions of experiences, if you like, that will become evident, that will appear in one's experience if we do not block 
dismiss or rule it out. In other words, if I'm close to the very uh, notion of it, or to, uh, just a priori, a absolutely no way, rule it out, and if I don't um, open my practice in a certain way, I won't have that experience. And then it will seem like, what are you talking about? Or you're talking about something you're making up, or it's not real, etc. So, we use the word, and we're referring to a whole range of experiences just like self. And just like self... Uh, the experiences of divinity or soul and the ideas of it, uh, we acknowledge, just like self, are historically and culturally contingent. The self that you and I experience, the selves that you and I experience now and assume to be real, the kind of modernist uh, self of, of Western civilization, was, was not uh, in many ways uh, at all similar to the self um, that the people that the Buddha was um, addressing 2,500 years ago in, in India uh, would, would have experienced. A lot of what we take for granted and the complexity and the, the kinds of interiority just didn't exist for them. Same with medieval um, Christendom. Very different. So, just like self, um, experiences and ideas of soul or divinity are historically and culturally condition, contingent, conditioned. We, we acknowledge that, absolutely. If it seems to someone listening, if it seems like, okay, yeah, but one of those, the self, it refers to a reality, and the other, others, like soul and divinity, are just um, metaphysical speculations. They're unnecessary, they're unreal, and they're ungrounded. Well, such a bias or assumption may just be uh, reflecting a kind of indoctrination or brainwashing, if you like. Um, the uh, assumptions there and the actual experience um, uh, may be determined um, by just what is the current dominant um, Weltanschauung, worldview uh, of, of Western modernist uh, society, culture. There's not so much that a person saying that has any very deep insight or radical, cutting, innovative idea. Actually, they're just adopting, indoctrinated by the assumptions um, uh, of, of the current dominant worldview. And their experience and their assumptions are determined primarily by that. But even more than that, ju again, just like the word self and the notion of the self and the experience of the self, um, notions of soul, God, divinity are empty in many other ways apart from just being historically uh, and culturally conditioned and contingent. Um, there's many ways to reveal the emptiness of the self and on many, many different levels. So I've talked and written a lot about that. And the same is true of soul, God, divinity, empty, and in many ways and at many levels. Now someone with a little bit of insight will say, um, <clears throat> uh, or maybe a lot of insight, will say, um, I use the language self, I use that term, but I know it's empty. And again, same. Same regarding divinity and soul and God, etc. We use the language, but we know it's empty. And someone with a perhaps broader um, insight will also say something like, um, uh, although it's ultimately empty, it's important to respect the self and to care for the self. 
Okay, so there's a there's a psychological wisdom there um, that's uh, quite important. And but again, just the same regarding divinity and soul. Although it's ultimately empty, it's important to respect the soul. What does that mean? And to care for the soul. What does that mean? And press this a little further. If if we were to ask someone, this hypothetical person who uses happily words like self um, or matter, which is a you know almost unavoidable again another unavoidable word, or life. Some people use that quite a lot. Life this and life that. Or, um, and if we were to ask someone, what do you mean when you say self? Like what is the self? Um, and what what is matter? What do you mean by matter? I mean, at first they would just sort of point. Well, I mean this, or I mean that, or I mean this here, and um, or life. It's and uh, you know sweep their hands around the room or, or around the the, um, the 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 outside or, or whatever. But you just but yes, but what do you mean by that? What do you and and you kept pushing this question, probing with the question. Um, Without a doubt, uh, it would pretty quickly um, reveal just how vague the notions of self, but also the notions, certainly the notions of life, uh, and even matter are. How um, full of assumptions, how often not well thought out, um, full, as I said, of assumptions, presumptions that don't actually really bear much scrutiny, uh, much probing, um, and that can be pretty quickly uh, revealed to be without secure foundations. Even matter, I mean, you just have to know, uh, well, maybe a fair amount about modern physics, and it's like, matter, a certain, but sort of the most obvious thing, at a certain point, mm, what are we actually talking about here? And what, when we talk about it, are we assuming? Uh, and presuming, and and what is the basis for assuming that? Can we be absolutely secure in those assumptions? Or we find out that it's resting on a set of assumptions or the definition of itself, itself of self, of <clears throat> matter, of whatever it is, is, is full of contradictions. All this is uh, uh, applies equally to uh, notions of divinity and soul. Um, they're vague notions. Uh, they rest on other assumptions. Any assumptions you push them deep enough, and you're gonna you're gonna come to uh, something you just have to assume without knowing it's an absolute truth. In other words, it has no sec- secure foundations, um, and a lot of a lot of um, notions actually end up being kind of circular in the definition, as you'll see when we talk about soul, etc. Um, and in fact, that's probably true about everything. Uh, there's a kind of um, uh, assumptionality and vagueness and kind of incoherence or circularity, um, uh, uh, contra- self-contradictoriness about everything. Um, anything you might name or point to or use as a concept or experience. Okay, so all that as a kind of precursor. And I'm also aware, of course, that, as I said, there's a lot of material here. Um, a lot of material on this retreat. There's a lot of, when you add it to the other retreats and the whole thing about emptiness, and uh, that's 
and imaginal, and it, 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 it's really quite a lot, and it's hard, you know, I, I appreciate it, it's hard to kind of keep it all in mind, especially hard, I mean, if you're not practicing with this material um, in, a, in a really exploratory way. And also, a lot of these ideas are not, are not necessarily um, always so simple or easy to understand, so I fully appreciate that. And by now, you know, what's happened is um, uh, I, someone very often says, well, what do you mean when you say X or when you say Y or when you say cosmopoesis or, or this? And I know that that person has he heard me explain it or unfold it at um, maybe even at some length um, in other talks in the past, um, and, and yet still they're asking. So this is very, very normal, very uh, understandable. So I, partly what I want to do now in, in exploring this web is also to, to, to hopefully it can function as a bit, somewhere between a kind of um, exploration of the whole web of ideas and, and a glossary, a kind of, um, if you like, glossary of terms, which is a pretty, I think, strange thing to try and do in a talk, for, in a recorded talk format, um, rather than a book where you can just flip to that page and quickly look it up. Um, but I'm hoping it will be helpful. I'm hoping you just know this is the glossary talk, and I can just go there and find it, and it's about this this time in or whatever. Um, but it is it is pretty uh, strange, um, as I know. So I hope it's helpful. I hope it's not too dry. Um, hopefully, it'll serve. So there's a, I made a list of twenty terms. Um, it's also strange because each um, each of these terms I'm going to be pretty brief. That's the whole point, trying to be quite brief. Um, but they each of these terms refer to a wide range of experience and uh, the things as I've talked about in much more length. Um, so it's not always easy to kind of sum them up very very succinctly or as succinctly as possible. So somewhere between a very brief glossary and a sort of um, looking at the relationships and filling it out a little bit. Alrighty, so 20 terms. Um, number one is, actually we just used it a, a minute or two ago, um, phenomenological approach, the phenomenological approach. So phenomena in Greek means appearance that which appears. Now, in my life, I said, what I have is appearances. Um, the assumption that um, this or that is underneath appearances, or it's really matter, or all um, uh, appearances, you know, perceptions come from the brain, um, this is all assumptions. What I have is appearances, phenomena. I use the word appearances, experiences, and perceptions interchangeably. So what I have is appearances, what I have is perceptions, what I have is experiences. That's what I have as a human being. Um, I don't go then in the phenomenological approach and add the assumption that everything comes from the, the, the neurophysiology of the brain and that's what gives rise to perceptions, etc. And I don't also come from a metaphysical perspective that first there is um, God or beingness or, or, or whatever, um, something like that. It's just there is appearances. Let's just um, relate to appearances and see what we can find out. So that's the phenomenological approach. Um, why it's so powerful is that it's it's for me it's a very powerful way into understanding emptiness and also uh, the imaginal. So um, uh, one one of the sort of 
a proto-phenomenologist, if you like, William James, a psychologist and philosopher. Um, for him, anything that arose in experience was worthy of a phenomenological approach. That includes images, that includes um, things that appear to be psychic phenomena, etc., etc. Um, but basically, whatever appears to me, um, I can relate to as a phenomenon and investigate it and in investigate what kinds of relationships and how it works, uh, relationships function around that thing, whether it's an image or a, a worldly perception or whatever, um, of the different senses, etc., um, an idea. Uh, all that is appearance. An idea even is appearance. Um, and it's worthy of investigation, and of course there's differences between those, but uh, domains of kinds of appearance, but still. Uh, and I've just put this in now, it's something we'll, we'll come back to. What I think is if we go deeply enough and radically enough with this phenomenological approach, actually it ends up, there's a ways that it can actually end up opening uh, what we might call metaphysical philosophy, um, but we'll come back to that. <clears throat> So the first one is uh, the phenomenological approach. The second one, and we've talked about this before, ways of looking. So for me this is a, a, another really fundamental, really powerful and pervasive concept, by which I mean not just looking with the eyes, certainly, but ways of sensing, ways of uh, knowing, ways of perceiving. Um, so involves any senses, um, but really it refers to what is the perspective that's being employed now, um, and 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 included in that is the relationship with the object um, that I'm perceiving, um, <clears throat> whatever that is, internal, external, etc., etc. Um, am I, um, for example, grasping at it? Am I pushing it away? Um, am I seeing it as self or not self, etc.? All these are different ways of looking. Wrapped up in that, always in the way of looking, is the conceptual framework. So the whole kind of um, mishmash of um, uh, conditioning factors in the perceiving makes the way of looking. And there's always a way of looking, most of the time, unless you're really um, into this way of practicing, um, and even then, most of the time, the way of looking is is um, is not conscious. We're not actually conscious of everything that's involved in the way of looking, and most human beings don't have don't have have very little um, range or leeway in the in the of ways of looking. In other words, they can just kind of on a very gross level shift the ways of looking a little bit. Um, I would see insight meditation practice as as the practice of a whole range of ways of looking, really developing that flexibility and that range of ways of looking in practice, in 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 ways that really have uh, a, 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 you know a powerful effect. So that's number two ways of looking. Related to that is number three this this whole idea of fabrication because we start to see as we play around with ways of looking in the phenomenological approach, that perceptions, appearances, experiences are fabricated more or less dependent on the way of looking. In other words, some ways of looking really seem to fabricate, um, if you like, more perception, more of a sense of self, a, so a more solid sense of self, a more separate, a more contracted sense of self, also with objects, more separate, solid, real-seeming, more um, oppressive also. Um, 
Uh, and in fact, with the whole sense of the world and other things uh, such as time and even space, etc. So there's a spectrum of fabrication and different ways of looking fabricate more or less, all the way to extremely gross and um, uh, uh, solid and oppressive to uh, much, much less fabricated, less fabricated, less fabricated, etc. Down to not fabricating at all. Um, and what's fabricated there, as I said, is, is dukkha, is, is dis-ease and suffering, but also the sense of self, the sense of object, the sense of world, the sense of time, all, all of it. So the fabrication of perception, that's uh, number three. Uh, number four is the concept of emptiness. Um, so this really means that what we come to understand one way or another, but this, uh, these ideas of ways of looking fabrication coming out of the phenomenological approach are one very powerful way of understanding emptiness. Emptiness means that no thing, nothing um, exists in, in a way that's inherent, uh, has what they call inherent existence, in a way that's independent of the way of looking, independent of the mind that's looking at it. In other words, it's, it's the way of looking that makes it a thing, and that makes it seem like a separate, independently existing thing. Without the way of looking, and without being fabricated by the way of looking, there is not the appearance of that thing. Uh, so that's one way of understanding it. Um, you can also do it analytically, and you find that the whole notion of things um, just that seem so real, so solid, so independently existent is actually incoherent. Things are actually unfindable. And that's another way into uh, understanding emptiness. What is empty? Everything is empty, without question. So even, find not just all selves and all things, but... Um, and that means any notion of self. So even the self is process, not a real thing. It's just a, a rising as a way of looking. It's a relative degree of fabrication. Um, but awareness is empty too. Actually, even the notion of fabrication is empty too. In other words, it's not really real. It's a, it's a kind of construct um, that we see. It, it, it actually, there's a way of going deeper and deeper into the whole teaching of fabrication as a practice. You find out that fabrication too is kind of incoherent. It's not, a, it cannot be a reality. Dependent origination, similarly, it's empty. All those 12 links, um, or 13, or, or 10, or however, you, whatever system you're using, all of them are independent, are, are lacking inherent existence. They don't refer to, to real, um, units of existence or units of being or realities or entities or whatever. Um, the unfabricated actually also turns out to be empty and the whole distinction then between what's unfabricated and fabricated also illusory. Uh, emptiness as well is also empty. So emptiness is a very radical, pervasive concept. Everything without question is empty. What, we're, what we end up with then, we start with this notion of ways of looking, and we end up with this really radical, thorough insight that in the end there are only ways of looking. The ways of looking are empty too, but all we have um, is, is a range of ways of looking which we can expand, and that's not realities, that's ways of looking. And those ways of looking also don't inherently exist. But all we have, all we come to, the freedom that we come to is there are just ways of looking. Something very beautiful, very radical, very um, 
profound in, in that insight. And extremely far-reaching. Um, <clears throat> so, in traditional Dharma approach, we, we as I said, uh, w- the idea of ways of looking, um, we channel that into the direction of which are the ways of looking that um, bring more suffering, um, or lock suffering into place, or, or, or whatever, um, and which are the ways of looking that ease suffering. So the whole concept of ways of looking in the in the sort of um, narrow Dharma sense is tied up very much with the Four Noble Truths, with what leads to suffering and what leads to the ease of suffering. But in exploring ways of looking, we also see that there's um, other directions that don't have, at least don't obviously have much to do with suffering and the end of suffering that can, that can uh, open up. So a way of looking can open up, for example, soul-making. Uh, more or less, etc., or cosmopoesis, more or less, and that they are related to <coughs> um, freedom and ending suffering, reducing suffering, but sometimes not in a very obvious way. Okay, so that's the fourth emptiness. The fifth, um, the words imaginal and image. So when I use the word image, I mean an imaginal image, okay, <coughs> which means definitely not just imaginary, i.e. just completely fictitious. Um, it also doesn't have to be, a, as we think, image has to be something visual, so it doesn't. It can involve any any of the senses and, and quite um, unusual ways of knowing and ways of perceiving things. But it also refers to more than just the use of the imagination. So just using the imagination um, does not mean imaginal. Nor even if um, an image comes and it has a kind of, you know, mythic character. Um, I don't know, dragons and um, you know, even Jesus or, or you know whatever. Um, uh, the, the, or some classic archetypal figure or something. It may not be imaginal. An image is an image for me, or imaginally functioning for me, is an imaginal for me, if for me, at that time, um, it has a kind of unfathomability to it, a, a depth to it, just, for example, in the way that a person does. So we would never, hopefully, we would never say, this person, my friend X, she means this to me, or she is this. It's like, I mean, we might say that, but we, we always know that that never captures her entirely. She, there's something I can't get to the bottom of her. Why? Because she's a person. She's a person. There's something unfathomable there. I can't reduce her. If I do start reducing her, what's going to happen to my relationship with her? She's probably not going to stick around um, much. Um, but similarly with imaginal figures, I can't capture them. They have this unfathomability. There was something kind of beyond the reach of my grasp that I, I can keep uncovering um, meanings and truths and um, dimensions to them, but I can't reduce them. So I can't, or, or rather I'm not reducing them for them to be imaginal. I can't say um, this image is just a result of some random um, neurochemical uh, reactions in my brain or neurophysiological pathways being fired or whatever, nor is this 
I can't reduce it in the way of this image is, um, I'm having this image, this image is coming because um, it represents this from my childhood or this factor of my mind or something. So imaginal means not reduced. Irredu there's a sense of irreducibility to them. It might encompass all, all of that, or acknowledge all of that is involved, the neurophysiology, of course it's involved. Um, it might have some bearing, we'll talk about this, I think we did on the, on the re-enchanting retreat, well, what's the relationship with my personal history and this image, but not reducing uh, the image to the personal history, to, to be a result of the personal history. So uh, what is imaginal to me, an Im imaginal figure has a kind of otherness and a kind of autonomy, okay, to just like a person, it's like they're not part of me, I don't completely control them. Um, so you can hear implicit in that is for something to be an image, it it's requires me to have a certain way of looking at it, because if I start to see it, no, 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 this is just random random neurochemistry or whatever, um, this dream that happened was just my uh, brain randomly firing at night to whatever, that's what brains do, and and then I have a way of looking there that's not imaginal, and the image is resolved or reduced or I lose interest in it or whatever, it's no longer imaginal. So in, in the meaning of the word image, it's not just an object, it includes the way of looking at that object. Yeah, and we are kind of we'll come back to this. We're kind of granting it a certain autonomy, okay. And with that, because there's this unfathomability and they're not reducible. Um, in time, and I'll come back to this. In time, we sense a kind of let's call it divinity to the image. It's part of the dimensionality. This will keep keep finding more dimensions in this image in the unfathomability of it. And all of this is meaningful, so that's part of what an image is always meaningful in some way. It doesn't mean it means X or it means Y. It's meaningful as a much more, a much fuller, less kind of um, tightly circumscribed uh, term. <clears throat> and always with the imaginal is an, uh, some kind of sense of beauty and some kind of sense of sacredness. Um, so they may not at all be, they may be quite surprising uh, uh, sense of beauty. There's a, there's a breadth and a diversity to the kinds of uh, beauties that can open up and the kinds of sense of beauty and the sense of sacredness that can open up through imaginal practice, in imaginal practice, um, as present there. Um, and oftentimes it's, yeah, it's quite surprising. That's a feature of ima image and imaginal practice, beauty and sacredness. Now, the imaginal uh, and images, um, and I'll also use the word fantasy, is almost interchangeably with images, but maybe when it has a bit more, a bit more of a narrative feel to it, um, use the word fantasies. Um, <clears throat> I don't just mean uh, we don't just mean intrapsychic. Um, so these also relate to how we perceive the world. So images, fantasies come in, they pervade, they mix with, they saturate our perception of, ev of everything, of self, of other, of world, of being, of path, etc. They operate in our life. 
So sometimes people, I don't get any images, meaning they don't get any intrapsychic images, sort of like shut my eyes and nothing comes. But um, images are in our life. And I would say where there is love, where we love deeply, where something's really alive for us, where something's really important to us, where something's really meaningful to us, there um, image and fantasy are operating in our life in relation to and around that thing, whatever that thing is, if it's dharma or practice or a lover or uh, can be absolutely anything, absolutely anything. Where there is love, meaningfulness, importance, <clears throat> aliveness, there there is image and fantasy. Now I'm going to throw in one more thing here in um, imaginal practice, which is that it involves also what I call seeing the image as an image, knowing it's an image. In other words, we're not taking this literally. If I have an image of, um, well, certainly if I have an image of of having sex with with someone, it doesn't mean I have to have sex with someone or I'm going to have sex. It doesn't mean that at all. I don't have to take it literally. Um, uh, But actually any image, it's... uh, it, it might have um, an outflow into life, but often that outflow is, is uh, it's almost always not literal. Um, it's always um, subtly kind of refracted um, or uh, um, modulated in, in life in the way that it's expressed. Um, seeing image as image, um, it doesn't mean if I have this image that I'm picking up something, some kind of ESP either or whatever. Um, <clears throat> although, of course, that there's that, that, that possibility too. Um, uh, but I'm not going to go into that distinction um, on this course. Um, it also means, seeing image as image, also means that the ideas and the concepts that are perhaps, excuse me, wrapped up with that... Um, uh, wrapped up with the image are not taken as uh, as truth claims. I'm not saying this is the reality or this is true about whatever. <clears throat> okay, so that was the fifth one. Um, image and imaginal. Uh, the sixth one, very related, is soul-making, which I used already. Um and soul making, what's soul making? It's anything, any activity or way of looking um, or way of being that um, that gives rise to a sense of soulfulness. So we could we could use it in, in the way of meaning it's soulfulness making. It's making the experience of soulfulness. Uh, and again, it could be anything. It could be anything in, in relationship with anything at all. The way of being with it, the way of looking at it, um, <clears throat> the thing that I do with it uh, or in relationship to it gives rise to a sense of soulfulness. And again, this is very related to the definitions of imaginal, but when there is soulfulness, there is um, a sense of importance, um, of deep importance. This thing is important to me. Strange as it might seem to someone else, this is important to me. Um, it has um, a deep importance. Um, it has a beauty to it. There's um, love involved, and often very different um, kinds of love. Um, a, a, a very a, a large range in the kind of expressions of love that are involved in soulfulness, meaningfulness. Um, 
resonances. So soul making is recognized through its resonances in, in the heart, in the emotionality, um, its resonances in terms of Im- Im- image. Uh, so an image has resonance with other image, and an image itself is, is resonant um, with the energy body, which I'll come to in a little bit, and with uh, um, ideas. It has soul making also gives a sense of dimensionality. Um, uh, it involves image and fantasy, and also idea. Uh, I'm going to call logos. Um, all of that. Um, so soul making means soulfulness making in the sense it makes that kind of gestalt of those kinds of uh, the gestalt of those kinds of experiences is refers to a sense of soulfulness. Um, <clears throat> And uh, but it can also soul making can also mean making soul making something called soul so not just soulfulness as an adjective to describe a set of experiences but also making something called soul. Okay, so the sixth uh, term here is soul making. The seventh term is indeed that word soul. Um, so what does this mean? Here again, I can use it in two ways. I can use soul as um, not in the sense of referring to an entity, but referring to a way of looking. Uh, soul is just a way of looking that gives rise to soulfulness, that gives rise to soul-making. Okay? So when I say soul, I'm just referring to it as a way of looking. <coughs> um, but I can also refer to soul as if it were an entity. We'll talk about it as an ent- entity. Um an empty entity. So go back to what we said earlier about self. So you talk about self as if it's an entity, but um, uh, but it's not. It's empty. Yet we still use the concept and we feel it as an entity, etc. Um, at times. Um, so similarly, we can talk about soul as if it was an entity. What kind of entity? Well, it's that entity, that aspect of chitta, if you like, um, that facet of chitta or or, or of being. Um, it's that which um, sees or senses um, in a soul-making way. That's the entity of soul. It's the um, uh, it's it's that which sees in a soul-making way, and in, in, what I meant in all that before, with image, with fantasy, with meaningfulness, with depth, with dimensionality, and, and beauty, and all that. That's soul. It's the, um, so soul-making increases soul. It makes soul in the sense that it, it um, uh, reinforces, it strengthens, it widens and deepens that entity, or that capacity, or that tendency to see in a soul-making way, to see um, in a way that gives rise to soulfulness, to see imaginally and with meaningfulness and resonance and depth and beauty and all that. The soul, uh, soul-making builds soul. It makes soul. <coughs> okay, so that's the seventh, uh, the term soul. The eighth is the term energy body. Um, and here I really mean, you know, it, it, it can sound like uh, we're talking about something, some kind of new age idea or esoteric sort of idea. Uh, really, I'm referring to a kind of uh, a mode of attending to the experience of body, a way of looking, again, if we go back to the phenomenological approach. So energy body really refers to that, um, a way of attending to this 
space, actually a little bit bigger than what appears to be my physical body, and the, the feeling of that, the sense of that, yes, the image of it, but also the palpable sense of that field of vibration, texture, energy, etc., um, really important to stress here. There is a real spectrum, there's a wide spectrum in that experience so that we can experience a very, very refined field of energy, very insubstantial, ethereal, and uh, that, that's lovely and actually very important. Um, sometimes even that goes and there's just a sense of space, which is really at the edge of what we might call, an absolute edge of what we might call energy body um, experience. Um, but at the other end, there's also just the sense of something really dense and earthy and solid um, and very substantial, uh, we can feel the energy body that. So the energy body refers to that whole spectrum. And it means more than just what many people are familiar with from, say, mindfulness practice or more um, conventional kinds of or more common ways of teaching insight meditation practice, just this, uh, what can seem at times just like this pulsing or flickering um, field of sensations or field of hot or cold or pressure etc um yes that's a certain kind of let's say um mode of attention or feeling of uh, experience of the energy body but it, it actually is much broader than that and there's ways of paying attention and experiences of energy body that um uh, are not like either that or the regular uh, sort of solidity we feel there's really a whole range there that's energy body uh, that's the eighth. <clears throat> okay, the ninth is Eros, um, uh, which we've already defined, and we're, we, as I said, we're in a small way, and we're going to expand it and kind of make a bigger definition as we as we go along. Um, so it's the desire. Eros is a kind of desire. It's the wanting more um, contact, more connection, more touching, more. Um, experience of, uh, or to experience more of, to know more, or to know more of, to penetrate more, or to um, to penetrate more of, um, or to open more, and to open to more of, um, to have more intimacy with um, some object, um, some erotic object, um, either <coughs> in... in um, uh, everyday perception or an imaginal um, uh, intrapsychically. Um, so note that um, uh, this is multi-dimensional, uh, multifaceted. We're not just talking about a mental faculty here, um, a sort of I'll come back to this, but some kind of vitaka vichara thing where you're just probing the object. Uh, I'll come back to that relationship. Um, First of all, it's not just mental, it involves all the senses, and uh, it's embodied, uh, which doesn't mean that it needs to manifest in action. But more importantly, and this is where the um, definition starts to get bigger, um, is that it involves and it um, uh, pulls in and stimulates 
um, the imaginal and the ideational. So actually when we talk about Eros, um, we're talking about something that moves towards, that includes the imaginal and the ideational in, in certain ways, in ways that expand them and, and moves uh, towards um, soul-making. <coughs> So you can see that Eros is the ninth uh, term, and you can see Eros is um, one kind of desire, if we use that word, uh, desire, as the tenth term. Um, and desire, we can maybe use it in, in a way that's more neutral or uh, as, as, a, as a more broad term, perhaps similar to the Pali word chanda. Um, so desire would then include eros as a subset uh, in, in the way that we've just described. When it does that, when the desire is of that kind, it's eros. But it would also include, um, desire would include craving and clinging and these kind of words we've used before, which I'll come to in a minute. But the tenth is just desire as something, a kind of a broad term of which there are different kinds. <clears throat> it's kind of a neutral term. Um, that word craving um, is the 11th, uh, 11th term, craving. And craving, and we'll come back to this more, I'm going to say craving um, <clears throat> is a kind of desire that does not lead to soul-making. Actually, it leads to a kind of contraction. Soul-making is an opening movement, and craving brings contraction. As I said, you can actually feel that in the being, in the, in the body, in the energy body, and in the mind, and in lots of other ways. Um, which we'll go into. Craving brings dukkha uh, uh, in, in the way that w we might use it okay, so to distinguish eros and craving, different kinds of desire. But craving is the eleventh term. And maybe if I use the term clinging um, as the twelfth term, um, what I'm really referring to is that whole spectrum that I talked about in the first um, few talks, where you're really talking about something that can be very, very gross, gripping, or, don't leave me, I need you, um, that kind of clinging, um, to uh, something really, really subtle. I was talking about actually um, avijja, just the belief that uh, the unconscious assumption that this thing, whatever this thing is, um, this emotion, this fingernail, this foot, um, is is me or mine, uh, unconsciously, uh, without even thinking about it, or even the avijja that um, this thing, whatever this thing is, um, uh, this moment of Vedana, or this lamp in front of me, this has inherent existence, that's a very subtle level, uh, that avijja is a very subtle level of clinging. And so it's wrapped up in attention because the mind needs to kind of cling in a very subtle way to actually perceive anything. So, uh, but clinging might, we might use it to refer to that whole, <clears throat> that whole spectrum in that broader sense. Uh, okay, so that's the twelfth term, clinging. Um, the thirteenth term is a... Uh, mm, uh, I have to apologize here. I've used it already, libido or libido, and um, I've already used it inconsistently, so apologies. Um, in a way, it's because it's not for me, well, at least not yet, that important a term. So um, apologies, and just to note, I have been inconsistent. Sometimes I might use it in, in a way that's almost equivalent to the way I'm using Eros, um, and I think that's the way James Hillman uh, likes to use it. And so sometimes I, w I might use it that way. Um, m I'm also thinking about using it as to mean more something like um, libido as the 
embodied, directed, intentional flow of life force into any area or domain. Um, so that might be um, a stream of creativity or um, work or um, uh, a, 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 a relationship or um, building something or, or whatever. Um, it might be a stream, it might be a trickle, it might be a torrent. In a way it refers to psychic energy and the way that can be employed in different ways. I think that's equivalent to how Jung used the term, but I also read something recently where he um, sort of said that and then said something else, but I don't mean it uh, I don't mean it like that, but he didn't really explain um, the alternative and I couldn't find um, anything else. So I'm not sure how, how he uses it. But, um, but, <coughs> but it is a term that people use and um, for Freud I think it was just um, uh, the, the, the pleasure principle in a way or the instinct that came out of the id, the sort of uh, pool of um, uh, animalistic instincts, if you like, and, and the, the force uh, often guided by pleasure principle and maybe other things. Um, and that's the libido. Um, sometimes Freud referred to it that way. Uh, for other people, it just it literally means sexual um, urge or desire. And there's also, uh, some of you will know, I'm going to return to this, there's, there's a um, psychoanalyst, I think he was uh, very active in the 50s and 60s possibly, um, uh, Scottish, called Fairburn. And he used libido in a way that sounds at first similar to the way we're using eros, a desire to, um, to connect. Um, so people use it in a, in a, in a. Um, it sounds similar, but actually I'm going to point out some differences later on in the retreat. Um, so libido, people use it in very different ways. Uh, sorry, I've already been sloppy and inconsistent there. Um, all I can say is uh, maybe the sloppiness and uh, fluidity in the way I'm using it uh, just reflects its etymology, which I already said: uh, libido, libation, liquid. Um, these are, this is the etymology, it's liquidy, so uh, the define, I'm defining it, um, I'm quite fluid in my definitions. Uh, that's a pretty lame excuse. Um, but I don't think we'll be using it much um, anyway. Anyway, apologies. Um, <clears throat> that's the 13th term. The 14th term is psyche. Um, so one meaning of psyche in the way that I use it is just really the, the totality of the chitta, the psyche. In other words, the, yeah, the, the mind, but not reduced to the thinking mind, just the whole, the whole totality of chitta. Um, but another kind of um, inflection of the meaning means especially um, soul. So using it equivalently with soul in the way that I, I defined soul earlier. As um, uh, um, uh, earlier in this talk, as the sort of organ of imaginal perception, so psyche as the organ of imaginal perception. But there's a second way that I use it sometimes, and um, and I really mean um, by psyche, I mean the totality of imaginal perceptions. I say um, the uh, psyche. Uh, Jung actually says psyche is image, um, but so I'm using it sometimes as the totality of the chitta, uh, more often as the uh, equivalent with soul, the organ of imaginal perception. But um, quite a few times I will use it as the totality of imaginal perceptions. So it's almost interchangeable with image. Okay. 
um, logos. So there's another Greek word, your eros, psyche, logos. Um, <coughs> logos, um, I'm using that to refer to a concept or an idea <coughs> or a whole conceptual framework. So in other words, um, what we're elaborating here is a kind of conceptual framework, um, but any concept or any idea or any conceptual framework is, is a logos. So for example, when I say um, the autonomy of the imaginal figure as if they're, they have um, a degree of being independent of me, um, that's a, uh, a concept, it's an idea, it's a logos that's operating in in imaginal practice, even at the same time as we know it's a dependent arising, which is another logos. Um, <clears throat> so you can have you have mixtures of concepts operating at any time. If I reduce the imaginal figure um, to, let's say, um, it's the product of random neuronal firings or conditioned neuronal firings, or it's the product of um, <clears throat> of uh, my my it's expressing. Uh, something from my childhood, or um, it's uh, expressing an aspect of my doing this. Being this kind of reduction of the imaginal figure, any kind of reduction involves um, involves a logos in operation. Any idea of causality that this is a result of that in the past, for instance, um, is also a logos, a concept operating. Um, another alternative w would be what's called telos. There's another Greek word. You're learning a lot of Greek in this retreat. Um, telos, which which refers to um, almost like causality from the future. I've talked about this, I think, on the on the last retreat. Um, that's a, a different logos, a different concept operating that the future, something so to speak from the future, um, beckons us and shapes the present. Very different idea. Very different logos. <coughs> um, if we talk about the divinity of Eros, uh, which is something we'll come back to, that's a logos. Um, neuroscience as a whole is, is, is a whole conceptual framework, is a whole logos. Um, the uh, idea that consciousness um, arises from matter as an epiphenomenon of matter, of neurology, um, that's a logos. Actually, evolution itself is a whole conceptual framework, is a logos. So what I want to say is um, that there's always a conception, there's always a logos operating in the mind, always, 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 except during experience of the unfabricated. <clears throat> um, when there's a collapse of conceptuality. So con by conceptuality and logos, I don't, I include like thought structures and thoughts, but I uh, it goes way deeper than that. So there's conceptuality operating even when there's no thought whatsoever. And oftentimes uh, the, the, concept, the concepts operating um, are just um, assumed, not really checked out, and, and oftentimes they're operating, most of the time they're operating without us really being conscious of what they are. But when I talk about logos, because it's wrapped up in perception, I'm not talking about something abstract. We live a logos, or we live logoi, we live different ideas, different concepts, um, shape how we live, they inform how we live, and they, but they shape, more fundamentally, they shape our way of looking. They're part of, they're included in um, the way we uh, look at everything, and therefore what we perceive, what appears to us. So they, in, they have massive influence, I'm not talking about something, a, a abstract ideas here. 
Okay, so the fifteenth is um, logos. The sixteenth um, is what I'm going to call the eros psyche logos dynamic, or the soul making dynamic. So there's interchangeable terms. Now. <coughs> Uh, I'm going to devote quite a lot of time to that on this retreat, but what it really means is that um, the more, the wanting more yeah, that we talked about with Eros, more connection, more opening, opening to more of the erotic object, penetrating more, to know more, to experience more, this this wanting more, that um, push there, if you like, or or wish to open more um, to the erotic object, um, that starts bringing in, inseminating, influencing, expanding um, the, the psyche in relation to that object. In other words, the imaginal perception of that object. So um, more dimensionality is created and discovered um, in that object. Um, in my erotic um, uh, connection with my lover or, or whatever it is, I start to see in her, I start to see in him my, um, I start to see more, more dimensions. They're not just um, this person I can put a box around. They're even more than just a human being, or rather the notion of humanity starts to open and have other dimensions. Um, and and with that, the, so there's an expansion of the of the psyche, they become richer, more complicated, deeper, wider, and there's a expansion of um, psyche of image uh, and also of logos. In other words, my whole idea of who they are, um, my idea then of what a human being is and what soul is, that gets expanded as well. So this is really really important. When it gets expanded, they are then more yummy to me, more interesting, more attractive. It it increases the eros there, um, and uh, uh, so there's a kind of um, <clears throat> self feeding, self generating, um, ongoing fertilization of eros, mutual fertilization of eros, psyche, logos, mutual widening, deepening, enriching, complicating, adding dimensionality, etc. Um, that that goes on. And uh, we can say much, much more about that. But when I refer to the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, or the, uh, I uh, will also use the word soul-making dynamic for the same thing, and that's, that's that process. Okay, and with a lot to say about that, it's very, very fundamental, um, I would say, in understanding that, and very central concept. <clears throat> okay, uh, that's number 16, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic. Number 17 is this term cosmopoesis. Um, so this is something, I would say, that we start to notice um, in imaginal practice, that as we go into imaginal practice, we start to see that it begins to spill over. Even if I've been practicing with my eyes shut, I open my eyes after I've been working deeply with mindfulness and sensitivity with this imaginal figure. I open my eyes and there's a kind of spilling over to the, to the perception of the world, to the world of perception. So that something of the image and something particularly of the divinity of the image um, starts to pervade um, the, my, my sense of the cosmos that I feel myself to be part of. 
So this is something we notice. It's also an instance of that whole eros psyche logos um, expanding dynamic that I was just referring to. It starts to expand beyond just the object, but also to other objects um, and to the world. So there are infinite possibilities for cosmopoesis. Um, more typical ones involve a kind of universal cosmopoesis in the sense that, um, so for example, meditating a lot on metta and and eventually at some point um, uh, a meditator will have the experience. The world is love. The cosmos is shot through with love. Now, you explain that to someone on the high street and they'll say, what are you talking about? Um, it's a It's a perception of the cosmos, it's a mystical perception, but it's characterized by universality. All things in the world are of the same substance, the substance is love. Um, it could be awareness, so if you practice a lot with a, a vastness of awareness and other related practices, um, you get a similar thing, the, the cosmopoesis there is, is also universal, everything is awareness, everything is the play of awareness, etc. But then there's also um, rarer in our circles, um, but uh, and more interesting f- for that very reason is um, particular cosmopoeses. So <clears throat> this particular erotic imaginal um, figure that I'm working with sensitively and mindfully in practice, um, then I get up and walk around and look at the world around me, and excuse me, um, and I notice that. The particularities of that figure um, that I was um, opening to and discovering and and sensitive to in the practice, they come to characterize the cosmopoesis. So the whole world um, becomes this this particular um, uh, or manifestation of or flavored with this particular imaginal figure and his, her, its characteristics, its particularities. So, cosmopoesis. Note that word poesis in contrast to logos. Because um, <clears throat> uh, we talk about, or in contrast to logi, um, co- cosmology is a word that people know. Cosmology means the study of the science of, of the universe. Um, and so we go and we hear about Big Bangs and, and all that stuff, which is, I love it. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, the difference between cosmology and cosmopoesis is the absence of a truth claim. Um, that goes with the cosmopoesis. So we're recognizing that this is this is a creation of the way of looking. There's, or better word is participation. We're participating in something. The way of looking, the chitta, the soul, is participating in the cosmos. So there's a participatory aspect of a kind of um, cosmopoesis of the reality uh, creating. Um, and, and also cosmopoesis. We, we're, we're talking about poetic truths, if you like. Here, um, something I've talked about before, which is different than the usual notion of scientific truth. Now, this also I've talked about before. There's a whole, you know, uh, really going to the philosophy of science and what's true and what's a model, etc., and um, all that. And also to point out that when I use the word, so I was contrasting poesis and logos, but actually when I use the word uh, logos um, in the way we're using it, we're not making a truth claim. Other than that everything is empty, and even that actually 
let go of at some point. Um, that there's a logos is just a concept that we can pick up, or a conceptual frame we can pick up without insisting or even believing it as true. Okay, um, but cosmopoesis is the seventeenth one. Uh, the eighteenth term is theophany. Um, theophany literally means uh, an appearance of the divine. <clears throat> so um, I think I gave a set of no. It was it was the last five talks of the retreat, the path, path of the imaginal that were had the title something like insight, theophany, cosmopoesis, sacred universe, something like that. Um, so dealt with it a lot there, and in, in a way, the whole of the reenchant. Seeing the cosmos retreat had to do with cosmopoesis and theophany, um, but theophany would refer to maybe when um, <clears throat> a particular thing or object becomes a particular face of the divine, um, or or becomes a face of the divine. Again, that can be a universal, but but more I'm interested in the particular. So this. Um, it really could be anything. Um, uh, this 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 tree, or or this person, um, um, or this body, or, or whatever, becomes a particular face of of the divine. Or this imaginal figure um, is a particular theophany. It's a it's a face of God, if you like, a face of the divine. <coughs> uh, that's the 18th term, theophany. The 19th term is divinity. Um, and again, um, this is something that we notice. I'm using it um, very uh, broadly, so I'm actually not uh, defining, but if you like, it's, um, again, it refers to a kind of unfathomability, um, mystery, otherness, um, uh, including of transcendence, um, all of that, but actually the no the notions are really quite wide of what that might involve. But it's something uh, I'd rather leave it to your experience and just say, notice with images as you work with them when they become really alive that they have this kind of numinous quality. It's something we notice um, rather than we uh, define it. And so you'll notice in imaginal practice that more and more um, with, uh, with, with an image, when you get used to it, it has this kind of quality of divinity um, to its part of its otherness. Um, but just to say a little bit about that, also, uh, that word, you know, standard insight meditation um, <clears throat> will bring experiences of uh, divinity. Um, of certain kinds, the, a whole range, actually various experiences of divinity, mystical experiences, um, I would say w would be inevitable um, for meditators meditating, um, you know, with dedication and consistently um, with insight meditation um, techniques and approaches, etc. Um, the question is, uh, so for example, that big awareness thing, everything is awareness, it really feels, or everything is um, love, it really feels like there is a divinity to that love, this is, um, the, the, the cosmos is shot through with a divine love, this awareness has somehow the, the, um, the sense people often talk, and they never have before, they start talking in theistic terms um, of, of uh, 
you know, almost surprising to themselves when when that those kinds of very very um, uh, common experiences happen. And I would say certain kinds of practices, I can put people in a room, get them to do these practices, and it's just a matter of time um, till these um, very uh, kind of standard experiences of divinity open up, and people almost inevitably start using that language. Um, and so the question is, um, if these experiences open up, even in standard insight meditation, um, what is the attitude to these experiences? What's the relationship to them? How are we interpreting them? Um, how are we conceptualizing them? <clears throat> so person might be told or might hear or might think, um, well, all experiences are impermanent, don't think about them, don't get attached to them, don't try and repeat them. We touched on this earlier. That's useful sometimes, sometimes that's useful, that to let go um, when it's too tight, the, the kind of gripping, the attachment. Um, but mostly it's not that helpful as a kind of attitude or a way of relating to these kind of experiences. It it's not quite intelligent enough. It won't open things out in a way that that's um, that, that that is that beneficial. Insight meditation, standard insight meditation techniques, conceptions, approaches, um, the conceptions underlying insight meditation will lead, with a certain amount of dedication and and kind of good practice, if you say good, um, to experiences that the Buddha did not ignore. He did not say in relation to, oh, just don't try and repeat them, they're just, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, let's not go there, don't get attached, etc., etc. He gave them names, he taught the monks to um, to repeat them, etc., etc. And um, the, these were not something he just brushed off. Uh, these were not experiences uh, he just brushed off. Um, and as the as the uh, the Buddha Dharma evolved after the Buddha died in, in different streams of tradition, the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, there was an even greater exploration uh, and a range of experience that was opening up from people's meditative practice, and and a, even a more um, careful and and comprehensive and um, uh, uh, manifold sort of categorization of of those range of experiences involving um, sen- different senses of divinity. So when we say divinity, I'm leaving it quite broad, but really talking about um, <clears throat> a whole range of experiences there. Um, again, some may be universal in character and impersonal in character, and some may be very particular, and some um, are related to particularities in theophanies, etc., and some um, will be personal, a personal God, an imaginal figure as a personal God, not an impersonal deity. We'll, we'll come back to this. Um, so that's the twi- 19th uh, divinity. And the last one um, that I may use um, is Buddha nature. So again, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, this is a term that has a wide range of usage and arguments and all kinds of stuff. Um, some traditions use it in quite a narrow way. It just actually is your capacity to become fully enlightened, to become a Buddha, uh, usually means over many lifetimes, just by virtue of the fact that um, the mind and the factors of the mind and the contents of the mind are impermanent. So although there's ignorance right now, um, ignorance um, 
can be it is impermanent. In other words, with with the right training, you can change it. It's not fixed. It's not a fixed thing. Um, as uh, and similarly with craving and and the rest of it that gets in the way, uh, or or rather whose absence qualifies enlightenment. Um, so in some meanings, it just refer meanings of the word Buddha nature. It just refers to that. It's just your um, your kind of unavoidable, uh, no matter how, what you think of yourself or where you are actually at um, in terms of your quote spiritual development. There is always and and um, undestroyably the um, the possibility of becoming a, a, a Buddha. So that's one usage. I mean, sometimes in more popular uh, usage nowadays, it just kind of refers to your innate goodness. So if you think you're, um, you know, you're a mean uh, person and you see lots of not-so-nice stuff in, it's just a kind of way of saying what in you at your core is something bright and um, luminous and, and good, inherently good, inherently loving. Um... If I use the term, I probably use it as just an alternative to the word God, in fact, or divinity, um, which I'm using in a, as I said, much more broad way, just because oftentimes the word God or divinity, those words really rub people the wrong way, um, and especially some, some Buddhists. So you can use it in Buddha nature, but in a, slight, in, a, in a different way than just that possibility. I'm actually talking about something that's divine. Again, it has a range of meanings. One um, kind of, uh, perhaps the most sort of full-on meaning, if you like, is from the Shentong tradition in the Tibetan tradition. And actually it's a tradition that goes back to um, Mahayana Indian Buddhism. But um, uh, in that tradition, um, Buddha nature means, uh, it's interchangeable with words like Dharmakaya, and actually even the word emptiness, which is used differently when they use it in that tradition from the way I'm using it. So, Buddha nature, Dhammakaya, emptiness, the absolute, and other words, and there's quite a few words that use interchangeable, mean something like the cosmic awareness that is inherently in me and in you and in everything that um, knows um, the emptiness of all things is not separate as a separate subject and uh, separating subject and objects in that sense is non-dual. It um, it refers then to uh, the 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 knowing, which is also empty. This this knowing awareness is empty in itself. But the knowing and the appearances and their emptiness, all that uh, known in a kind of non-dual way. So in, in other words, it includes the whole the whole cosmos um, as this kind of field of um, of uh, empty awareness, uh, knowing all things, uh, and 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 also the emptiness of all things. So everything is Buddha nature. Everything has Buddha nature. Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is Dharmakaya in that in that um, <coughs> in that logos, in that um, experience. And also, um, even stranger um, to to some some Buddhists, this will sound strange. Is that this this Dharmakaya or this Buddha nature can act? So this cosmic Buddha nature can act in the world and manifest different appearances or different um, qualities um, 
for an individual or in an individual um, dependent on what that individual needs for their uh, well-being and their deeper journey. Um, so that there's a kind of, um, if you like, world, uh, so, sorry, intelligence, something akin to the world soul, um, there's a kind of intelligence or divine um, inter. You know, divine activity that's not uh, that's operating in and through and as Buddha nature as well as that awareness and its inseparability from emptiness, from appearances, etc. Phew. Okay, so there's twenty terms um, in a kind of glossary. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.